Hello Strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm with the co-host Paul Anderson here as ever with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week, sir? Um, I'm doing well, man. I'm doing pretty well. I mean, we have had the announcement, have we not, that everyone has been craving from our dear leaders. Um, and so I guess we see some sort of what they're calling, Paul, the roadmap. Uh, a roadmap <laughs> out of the, the misery and the darkness. Uh, whether this, in fact, will be, you know, a roadmap to um, a great oasis or merely a mirage on the horizon in the summer is yet to, you know, be seen. But I'm trying to stay positive. How about you, man? Like, do you feel more upbeat as a result of knowing that we've got a sort of plan of when we might be getting back to quote unquote normality ish? I guess so. I think it's just kind of like, I believe it when I see it uh, at this point, to be honest. So I'm trying not to get too hopeful just in case the rug gets pulled out from under us again. But, um, you know, cinemas, I think May, May 17th, May 18th time, if, I'm, if mm. I might be wrong there, looks like when cinemas might reopen. So obviously I'm, I'm holding out for that. I won't, I won't lie. I am quite looking forward to going back to the pub as well, to be honest. So um, yeah, there is a bit more positivity, but a slightly guarded positivity. I think. I think we've we've got excited last summer that it might all be over, and then the rug was pulled out from under us again. So um, yeah, guard, guarded positivity, I would say, is is how I'm looking at this. But yes, on the face of it, good news because this needs to come to an end. <laughs> are you are you one of those with the um, pub? opening countdown clock like on your desktop on your computer or whatever because I, I saw that I wasn't one of those people but I might be after this show <laughs> yeah it's been doing the rounds on Twitter and stuff a lot of people getting amped up for that countdown but <laughs> what what we're doing today Paul is a countdown all of our own is it not because as we do fairly frequently on the show we're throwing in a top five it's a format that might catch on um, it's going to be this week top five schemes schemes cheeky schemes uh you know uh, backhanded schemes maybe even evil schemes um the reason that we're doing top five schemes is because of this week's feature what have we got this week for the feature review paul uh, this week's feature is uh, a film called I Care A Lot, which is just, I had it down as being a Netflix release, and I think everywhere else in the world is a Netflix release, but it's an Amazon Prime release starring um, Rosamund Pike, uh, Isaac Gonzalez. Um, I've completely forgotten who directed this, to be honest, but we'll get to that. Jay, Jay Blakeson, Paul. Jay, Jay Blakeson. So yeah, it's um, it's a, a schemey thriller, shall we say, um, that, that kind of twists and turns in plot, hence the link to... Uh, top five schemes this week but we'll talk more about I care a lot in the uh, the feature review section because uh, I'm intrigued to talk to you about this one Pete so yeah so the rundown as it goes is that at the close of the show we'll give credit to something that we've enjoyed over the past week but before that as Paul's outlined there we're going to have a feature review of I care a lot uh, in addition to the feature review though tacked on to that feature review of course the top five that we've just listed before all of that good stuff we're going to go through our popcorn movies these are movies that we've been watching since the last record so a week ago but first of all we go into the foyer Paul what's the movie news for this week that has interested you or caught your attention 
so the first thing that jumps out at me this week is the news that Edgar Wright um, is attached to adapt a new version of The Running Man, uh, which is incredibly exciting because it's one of my favourite silly Schwarzenegger films. Um, and Edgar Wright is, you know, is up there one of my favourite directors, I think, for sure. So um, the combination of Edgar Wright and kind of the original, going back to the original Stephen King short story, which I think he wrote as Richard Bachman at the time, I might be wrong there. Um, but yeah, apparently it's going back to the original Stephen King short story. So I would expect a very different take on the work than the, the Schwarzenegger um, original film version, which is, you know, a good thing. There's no point doing the same thing twice. Running Man has, has its fans and I'm one of them, but it's not one of the great, you know, one of the great film works of all time by a long stretch. That being said, I do enjoy it. But I think Edgar Wright's kind of irrelevant take on things will be um, quite enjoyable. And I think he could be a good, uh, good director to take a run at this. Does this interest you, Pete, at all? Or? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think I sort of feel that way about about Edgar Wright stuff in general. Like, I, I, he's one of those directors where I totally see what people get from his movies. I just don't think I get as much of it um, as maybe others do. I mean, having said that, recently um, having upgraded my uh, my sort of home entertainment package to the give them all your money and get all the channels package. Um, <laughs> I, I've done started this new thing which I'm, I'm quite enjoying which is sort of just bumping into like good movies in the in the middle of the day when I've got some time and one of the ones that came on was The World's End and it kind of brought to my attention the fact that Edgar Wright I guess is the kind of director where I'm not going to seek out his work to rewatch, but when it's there to rewatch, I really enjoy it I get quite a bit from it so yeah I could say in a roundabout way that I'm looking forward to this I mean Having said that, I was a, as a kid, I was a huge fan of the uh, Arnie Running Man, and I think that maybe there was a part of me when I read this news that just thought like, ah, oh, too soon, man. But it's been like thirty years, and I'm just getting <laughs> old. Soon, yeah. You know, that, that's what it is. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. It, it'll be good. Edgar Wright stuff is at worst good, I would say. So yeah, uh, I, I'm looking forward to it um, at least tentatively. What else have we got this week? I mean, what else is going on now? Uh, there's some great news uh, for Chloe Zhao. Uh, Chloe Zhao, uh, we talked about a lot on the show over the past few weeks in the news section because she's been in the news, to be fair, uh, and in the news for a very good reason this time. Um, she is now, um, as it stands at the moment, well, well, she is the most award, the most awarded filmmaker in a single awards season, which is crazy. Um, so at the moment, and this is I've taken this source through Variety from Women, a website called Women and Hollywood, just to credit the source on this one. Um, 34 award season trophies for directing, 13 for screenplay, and 9 for editing. That is bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. She beats out Alexander Payne for Sideways, um, is, was the last most awards per, most awarded person in a, in a single season. So whether or not this guarantees Oscar glory, I don't know, but I'd say it's pretty much pointing in that direction at, at this moment in time. And it's so said, well deserved. You know, she's a fantastic director. So um, it's great, great news. Yeah, absolutely. More good news this week. Look at the positive bent that we're going on. Uh, <laughs> the Disney Plus streaming service, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners have jumped on board with already and will be well aware of the news that's coming, have added um, a sort of arm to that service just a couple of days ago. Uh, in fact, yesterday, I think, at time of recording, which is called Star. And Star brings with it what you maybe never expected to see on a Disney platform, which is 
adult content, uh, content for grown-ups. I mean, we've got, uh, to be fair, I'm not saying that the Disney content is not for grown-ups. Let's just make say, that just straight. Just watch yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife will kill me before you do. But uh, yeah, this means that we've got all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, movies, of course, uh, television series, but our focus would be on movies given the show that we do. I mean, just looking at the front page of the star section and we've got things like um, Good Morning Vietnam, Boys Don't Cry, Grand Budapest Hotel, Miller's Crossing, The Thin Red Line, like all kinds of big name directors work, as well as some sir-ish middle indie sort of mid-budget stuff as well. Uh, so yeah, big name directors, big name actors and movies that you may or may not have seen, but I think even the most avid film fan or sort of self-proclaimed cinephile is going to find some stuff there that maybe they haven't caught up with yet. So it's just another way that I guess we can get through the bleak, everlasting winter that is our existence at the moment, Paul. So like, that's good, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's great. You know, the more content you can stream, the better. I mean, even even me, you know, an ardent physical media fan has signed me find myself buying very very little films these days so um because there is just so much available online and in good quality now so to see some of these on here is great idiocracies on there, office spaces there those are the two that jumped out at me which was great um and yeah my wife started calling this disney after dark um which is which i think is a, gr a great name for it um and it's not the case but um it's not called disney after dark but yeah um no i think it's, it's great anything that adds sort of decent new content is there diehards on there it's essentially all of the fox catalog i think is is pretty much there somewhere so um with potentially more to be added so yeah i think it's i think it's great it does up the cost a bit if you're a new subscriber but i think it's certainly from what i've seen of from what i've seen when i've been browsing through i think it's worth the extra couple of quid a month with the um with the extra stuff on there so and it certainly will um turn the screws on netflix a bit i think so yeah and, and just to throw in an extra one, I mean, there's loads. We'll do a stream team at some point on, on this platform. But uh, Waking Life, a movie that I need to rewatch and haven't rewatched in a yeah, few I years. Yeah, that was on there, really which like. is another great, great little pick, to be honest. And a quite a surprising choice for Disney Plus, to be fair. Yeah, really. Like, you didn't think you'd be going to Disney Plus to watch sort of a, sort of trippy philosophizing in rotoscoped glory but you can because it's there for you now so yeah cool get on it if you haven't we don't you know we're not plugging them for money but it's another option and when we're all stuck at home god knows we need some options uh you know you can't have too many i think at this point so i think that's just about it for news isn't it this week paul uh, yeah i've got nothing else i wanted to uh, report on so all good all good cool in that case we'll bounce out we'll take a little break and we'll come back with popcorn movies right after this <laughs> Right, well, here we are, back with Popcorn Movies for this week. This is the section of the show where we talk about anything we've seen generally. As Pete said, exactly the same words just before the uh, drop, um, or break, shall we say, not before the drop. Um, yeah, we're kind of talking about anything we've seen over the past seven days. So, um, Pete, what have you got first? Uh, first one for me, I will go for, is um, State Like Sleep. This is a movie that I've wanted to catch up with for a little bit, mainly because it's uh, a real vehicle for Catherine Waterston, um, an actress that I like, and I thought, you know, that's enough um, to attract my attention. I thought the poster art was all right, and um, it's kind of sat around in the background and I haven't got around to it. It was a movie released in 2018, I think, um, or at least finished in 2018, maybe hit cinemas in 2019. It's written and directed by Meredith Danluk, uh, it's her feature debut, at least um, 
yeah, feature length debut, I should say. Uh, co-starring here or supporting cast members include uh, Michael Shannon, Luke Evans with a sort of Neymar haircut, which is uh, something that's, you know, w- worth the price of admission, I guess. But State Like Sleep is a movie about a woman dealing with grief. Um, the state like sleep seems to be the state of being in um, mourning for the loss, in this case, of her husband. Her husband uh, played by uh, that guy who was the uh, other lamb, the guy who was the leader of the cult in the other lamb, uh, Michel Huisman, uh, Michael Huisman, Michel Huisman, I don't know. Uh, and he has passed away seemingly at his own hands. Um, as I said, working as an actor as he was, he was in the public eye. His partner doesn't quite know what led to his demise, um, what led him to perhaps take his own life was their foul play. And so what we get is a movie that sort of chops backwards and forwards in chronology, trying to piece together what happened. And we follow for a lot of that time, the central character played by Catherine Waterston, the character also called Catherine, as she gets pulled sort of into the murky underworld of sort of drugs, nightclubs, strobe lights and sort of synthwave music. There's a lot that I quite liked about this movie. I mean, it's not been reviewed particularly well. The Metascore sits at 48 at the moment. But like just looking at things that I noted down in the movie, Paul, You'll understand why I've brought this up. They have a conversation, Waterston's character and Michael Shannon's character, who plays a sort of interested neighbour stroke possible love interest of sorts uh, in the movie. They have a conversation about linguistics and the way that certain words are onomatopoeic. They sound like what they are. Um, Talking about words like pierce, slide, curve, anguish and burden, which is just a bit of unusual writing that I really enjoyed in a, a, you know, in a ostensibly a fairly second rate thriller, I guess you could call this one. Um, Also, Michael Shannon does a terrific bit of seduction, which I haven't seen a lot of Michael Shannon doing seduction recently, more sort of, you know, bristling weirdo or psychopath. So I appreciate that um there is uh oh yes the real highlight for me the cinematographer christopher blow blowvelt i think is his name or blauvelt is this guy who has just an incredible back catalogue of work um so a really distinctive style uh i mean take a case in point certain women um that movie that I raved about not too long ago and that looks absolutely just gorgeous. I mean, go back through his back catalogue and you'll see what I mean, but just the, the thing looks great. And then, yeah, this sort of synthy soundtrack, the sort of um, disorienting nature of the whole thing and the way in which the central character is allowed to d- deal with her situation in, in the way that um, she sees fit or however she can, I guess, under the strain that she's under. So it's a bit of an oddity. I don't think it's pulled together into a particularly satisfying conclusion, Um, but I think it's a lot better than people have given it credit for. And so I reckon it's worth checking out. I caught up with it on Sky Cinema, but I think it's available elsewhere on streaming as well. It's State Like Sleep. Um, Give it a look if you're interested. Paul, what's first for you? Uh, first for me is an early contender for my most pleasant surprise of 2021. Um, and this is, bear with me on the title of this one, this is Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Um, this is the latest from uh, the team, a lot of the creative team behind Bridesmaids. So we've got written by Annie Mumler and Christian Wig, uh, directed by Josh Greenbaum. Um, this tells the story of two friends, um, Barb and Star, believe it or not, um, as they go on, kind of, they end up on 
the adventure of a lifetime was like they end up going on holiday to the Vista del Mar resort and end up in the adventure of a lifetime um and both at times trying to compete for the heart of a uh, young man played by uh, Jamie Dornan um now there is I, I just I don't know where to start with Barb and Star in terms of just how silly it is. I'd say it's about a 12 out of 10 on, on the absolute nonsense scale. Um, and that, in this case, is one of those films where, trust me when I say it really isn't a bad thing. Um, there's an even more ridiculous subplot that I won't I, I won't spoil that's going on. It's not quite, on the face of it, it's not quite just them going on a holiday. There is more ridiculous um, more ridiculous elements to the plot. Um, Jamie, Dorman, Jamie Dornan is the best I've seen him for probably full stop. He's having a blast here. At one point, he does sing a song about seagulls and i won't put any more spoilers than that really in here uh but it's it's just a delightful slice of silliness um again we've talked about kind of the films that the films that we need at the moment to try and break the the mundanity of having to sit at home all the time and with everything going in the world um a bright sunny ridiculously silly comedy um kind of did the trick for me to be honest and i saw mark kermode's review of this and he was sort of he was getting upset that it lacked any form of directorial discipline uh it doesn't have any directorial discipline mark kermode but you've completely missed the point if that's what you want from this um it's christian wig dialed up to 12 and i had an incredibly great time with it and I, i i can't can't recommend this highly enough as a very very silly very very funny comedy i loved it yeah I mean, some, including myself, might suggest that Mark Hermode's not the, necessarily the critic to go to for kind of, well, for, for sort of a, a comedy movies of a particular kind. I, I think that's kind of pretty well established at this point. And it's not to slag the guy off at all. I, I just think there's a generational gap there or I don't know what it is. But um, yeah, it's happened before. Um, yeah, it's true. It's true. I, I don't know what Sir Kermode thinks of this, but... The next one I think is bad for me. Uh, it's a movie that is a Sky Cinema exclusive. Um, so they're like every streaming platform now, putting out sort of original content and trying to establish themselves in that particular market as well. This one's called Blythe Spirit. Blythe Spirit is an adaptation of a Noel Coward play um, here directed by a director called Edward Hall. And it stars Dan Stevens. Uh, you know, we're we're both big fans of Dan Stevens, I'd say, Paul. Uh, alongside his wife, played by Isla Fisher, and then his ex-wife, who is played by, um, oh, uh, Ah, oh, what's the name of the person who I'm... Th- Say again? Leslie Mann. It is Leslie Mann. Yeah, thank you. The IMDb listed her low and I was scrambling around. Yeah, Leslie Mann, um, of course, here. And the setup is this, Paul. The central character has a seance to get in touch with uh, the deceased. And accidentally, during that seance, it's his deceased first wife that comes back in spirit form. That first wife, played by Leslie Mann, causes a sort of awkward love triangle of sorts between himself, his now current wife, who is alive, played by Isla Fisher. I think they've been married about five years. And this former wife, who's now back on the scene. And maybe he's not over effectively he's not over his ex which in and of itself is a fairly funny premise I don't think it works very well Paul it's a sort of a costumey uh, drama that allows Isla Fisher to look unbelievably good in her mid 40s and aside from that I don't know if I've got much to recommend it I mean I like Dan Stevens I like these actors to a decent extent I don't think it has a lot of zip to it I don't think it's particularly punchily directed um, and and it sort of just 
splutters along um, and then ends. So, yeah, I don't know. If you want... Judy Dench is in it. It makes a little appearance anyway. If you want something that is sort of costumes and comedy, I think you can do a lot better than this. Um, that's Blythe Spirit anyway, for those interested. Paul, what have you got? Uh, next up for me is Yojimbo, 1961 effort from Akira Kurosawa. Now, I think I talked about Seven Samurai on the show a few weeks back and said that was my first, my very belated first experience with with Kurosawa. So I thought I'd uh, watch something else. And uh, yeah, not disappointed again. Still blown away just by how accessible and sort of lightly entertaining his films are. Um, in terms of the tone, the pace they've set, you can tell why they why they were such an inspiration to you know the young generation of Hollywood filmmakers you can see a lot of you know uh, well an inspiration to almost every filmmaker to be fair but in terms of the tone they set the kind of pace the structure of the action scenes the edits the way they look like you can see Lucas is Lucas is you know is a massive fan it's it's, it's obvious to see um but again yeah this this was great it's just surprisingly fun surprisingly entertaining um the premise is um if a samurai arrives in a town kind of looking for work realizes that there is um, kind of money to be made from both sides of these two criminal gangs um, who are kind of kind of locked in a they're kind of locked in a war but they're also kind of locked in a stalemate against each other so the um so this the samurai character plays off the two gangs against each other kind of sets them up to have certain fights does certain things gets in a little bit over his head but yeah it's a very very cool plot that's been that's been you know it's been heavily influential to other to other filmmakers but um yeah absolutely loved it um ran is next up for my kurosawa list because i've not yet to see that and that that is supposed to be epic so i'm very much looking forward to that but yeah yojimbo was uh yojimbo was great so if you haven't seen it uh, i'd urge you to check it out nice um another one that i would urge people to check out uh particularly yeah if you've missed it off like i had up until now is sunset boulevard have you seen this paul no i haven't actually it's another one on another one on my list <laughs> so yeah it's 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 been ages it's getting round round to it for whatever reason for me like they're always you know as we've talked about many times like lots of things that that sort of um fall through the cracks but sunset boulevard the 1950 movie directed by billy wilder tells the story of a sort of faded former star of the silent era when you've got that change in hollywood history from silent movies to talkies and that sort of whole glut and group of actors and actresses who effectively got left behind in the silent era because they didn't make that transition for any number of reasons over to talkies whether they were um, cast aside not accepted didn't quite fit there were actors who had accents that were foreign that people didn't obviously hear when they were stars of silent movies and I think it's really fertile territory and uh, this is is a wonderful piece of work we're not breaking any news but Sunset Boulevard opens with a single tracking shot that is exquisite uh going from uh the sunset boulevard of the name all the way to the scene of a crime the use of the camera is the kind of thing that you could show to anyone making their first film now uh you know all these years 70 odd years that we are removed from from the film itself being made and so yeah at the center of it the the sort of faded star that i mentioned is played by gloria swanson and she lives in this mansion all alone and one day she has the I guess um, opportunity presented to her to um, get back out there 
This comes in the form of William Holden's character who pulls his car into one of her garages. She's got this sort of, um, you know, luxurious property with space for a number of vehicles. And he needs to hide his car because he's running away basically from um, debt collectors. Once he's inside the property, he realizes that she thinks he's someone else and thinks that he's this guy who's come to help her with basically getting her acting career back on track. She then basically holds him somewhat hostage, although he has the chance or choice to leave. But he's given essentially carte blanche to have a lifestyle beyond his means as long as he will write the screenplay that will allow her to re-emerge effectively, being that he is a writer. Um, and then it soon becomes clear that she sees him as more as more than just a writer for hire, but in fact, a possible toy boy love interest. There's a fair age gap between the two. And suddenly he needs to be with her for all of her events. She'll have, for example, a dance or dinner party, and he'll soon realise that he's actually the only other guest. And they're just going to dance alone in the middle of her abandoned dance floor in this huge cavernous house that is completely otherwise unoccupied. That is apart from by her butler, essentially. And her butler at one point reveals that maybe he's had more of a connection with her in the past as well. Uh, it, yeah, as I said earlier on, it's a wonderful piece of work. It's one of those that just does stand up. I know some people have this attitude that, you know, anything made before sort of 1970 is not worth it. And my word, there was a row on Twitter over the last I did, I week or that, yeah. two uh, <laughs> about uh, the, the director um, of uh, oh, what did you make? Green Street Hooligans, amongst Punisher other things. Punisher Warzone as well. Punisher yeah, Warzone, yeah. don't forget. Yeah. Ch chiming in about basically, you know, putting herself in the line of fire because her, the phrasing of her tweet intimated that movies made before sort of 1970 were all racist and sexist AF, I think was her wording, uh, which obviously didn't go down too well with the uh, the mass of uh, the Twitterati or whatever. But yeah, Sunset Boulevard really stands up. I didn't give too much of a shit about that debate on Twitter, but this is great stuff, um, you know, no matter who you are and what area you're catching it in. So check it out. Paul, have you got any more? Uh, I have, yes. This is a film that I did not expect to enjoy and was kind of delaying watching because I just, I just didn't think it would be for me, um, despite really, really positive reviews across the board. Uh, this is John M. Chu's Crazy Rich Asians from 2018. Um, wow, this one took me by surprise. Um, it really did. I was, I had concerns that I wouldn't like it because the comedy would be painted in broad strokes. The kind of romance would be painted in broad strokes. It would be a bit kind of twee, a bit kind of self, self satisfied, and a bit smug with itself. And it absolutely is all of those things. But it is all of those things so well done and so well acted that I couldn't help but to genuinely fall in love with this film a little bit. Um, Constant Wu, we've got Constance Wu here, we've got Henry Golden, we've got Michelle Yeoh. Who else have we got in this? They're, they're, kind of, they're the cast that jump out at me. We've got Aquafina, um, Gemma Chan's in this, Ken Jong's in this. Jimmy O. Yang's in this. There's an incredible cast, and everyone's great in this. I think that's that's really what helps this film is that everyone seems completely committed to this material. Like everyone's into this film, everyone's committed to this material, and everyone gives great performances, which you know really, 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 really helps. Um, and there's a there's some there's a really good there's some really good set pieces in it. It's really uh, no, it, it really really took me by surprise. I cried. I nearly cried at the wedding, Pete, and I did very much cry at the end. Um, so that you know that probably tells you what you need to know about this. To, I, to I, be I fair, really liked it. Paul, to be fair, there is a simple equation here which I've seemingly established in my mind over time. It is Paul Anderson plus wedding equals crying. Because I think 
like IRL weddings, you, th- there'll be a tear shed. And then it yeah. seems like, you know, you get the right movie with a, with a decent wedding in it and it can have the same effect. But no, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to come come out with, you know, uh, I told you so, but I did kind of tell you so. You did tell me so, yeah. You're not the only one to have told me so. Uh, yeah, no, you're not the only one to have told me so. I have been told by a few people. But um, yeah, as I said, all yeah, I just, I really liked it. And so if you, if you don't think it's for you, I get it. But from coming from, you know, a... I consider myself to be a fairly cynical uh, film fan at times. Coming from coming from me, uh, if you've written it off because you don't think you like it, give it a chance. It's it's well worth a look. I did I had a great time with it and I really really liked it. So yeah, Crazy Rich Asians, see it. Nice. Uh, the last one for me this week. Um, I rewatched for I don't know the umpteenth time, but the first time in a number of years. Minority Report from a little director called Steven Spielberg. Um, this one, of course, uh, adapted from the work of Philip K. Dick, as so many good movies are, I suppose. Uh, and in the hot seat here, we've got Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise playing a guy who basically swishes his hands in front of his face a whole bunch and occasionally takes possession of a carved wooden bull that identifies pre-crime, crime that hasn't yet happened but that can be stopped before in fact it does happen. It's a really cool idea. You've also got like things you forget about just the passage of time, I guess, Paul. Like Colin Farrell's in it, but he's about 25 when they made this movie, which seems just <laughs> yeah. weird now because of course it has been uh how many years? Minority Report 2002 uh, it came out. Um, in the UK at least. Uh, I think a standout in the movie for me still at this point is Samantha Morton who plays the um, one precog that isn't a twin um, in the sort of uh, birthing pool, I guess, for want of a better description, where they keep the precogs who are the people who have the mental capacity to predict crime um, before it occurs. Another standout for me, Paul, is the idea of the sick stick. I couldn't stop talking about it when my <laughs> wife was seeing this for the first time and I was like, I'll wait till they get to the sick sticks. I just enjoy it as an idea. Uh, although obviously when you get the moment in the film where an infraction's taking place around the sort of birthing pool where the precogs are, you think this is not the time or place for a sick stick. Because if you get sick in that pool, what's that gonna do to the predictions <laughs> of pre-crime? I mean, it's gonna go completely haywire. Um, I would say a couple more things. One, you know David Cage, who made like Heavy Rain and uh, Detroit Become Human, he wholesale lifted chunks of like Heavy Rain from Minority Report. The the press X for Jason bit, the bit with the balloons in a crowded public area, it's taken out of this film. I know. Okay, I haven't seen Minority Report for years, so I need to give it a rewatch. But um, oh yeah, yeah. you'll you'll (laughs) notice, Paul. Video game fans will notice this. In addition, I think maybe for me, sort of the the last third of the movie doesn't maybe have quite the snap that that I hoped it would. Um, a little bit, a little bit like a David Cage video game, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's a really good movie. I don't know that I rate it quite as highly as some people, but I think in terms of like slick, futuristic sci-fi stuff that's good for you know a good old time with some popcorn, like Minority Report stands up pretty well at this point. Even though all the kind of gesture stuff is ridiculous now that we have you know haptic feedback and multi-directional touchscreens and stuff like that it does look a bit dumb when they're like waving their hands about and stuff (laughs) like that but and you know the carving a ball with the particular grain being completely unique did remind me a little bit of the loom of fate in wanted and that's not a good thing so um yeah overall it's good
good. Uh, watch it again if you like that sort of thing. That's Minority Report. What have you got else, Paul? Are you done? Uh, I've got one more to to um, throw into the mix. This is uh, a film called Dune Drifter, or Dune Drifter, sorry, from uh, 2020. This is directed by um, Mark Price, who people may know from the film, the zombie film that came out quite a few years ago now called Colin. It was very low budget. Um, Romero took a liking to it, and it was a really, really cool um cool zombie film kind of told from the perspective of the zombie as he changed as opposed to the other way around as opposed to people encountering him so um it was nice to nice to happen across i didn't know mark price had made a film since then so it was nice to happen across another film from him this is um a good limited budget but he does i think he does quite a lot with a limited budget it's the, um it's just an enjoyable a very enjoyable very fun uh very well paced sci-fi that starts with um starts with kind of a, a a space battle and then ends with a lone survivor being trapped on a planet kind of being hunted by these sort of semi sort of mutant human creatures um it's it's a lot of fun i really had a great time with it and i think it's um it's always nice to see directors getting creative with a low budget and kind of he, he pulls all the tricks out of the bag on this one for sure so um a lot of things happen off camera a lot of things but it's, it still remains quite tense so yeah if you're looking for if you're looking for a fun uh fun sci-fi um you can do a lot worse than dune drifter so um check it out where did you where can you get it uh, you can rent a version on Amazon at the moment, uh, but I'm informed that that is slightly cut. So um, he, I was lucky enough to see the uncut version because I actually met with, I actually met Mark on a Clubhouse uh, event that I've started joining. So uh, there is a version on Amazon, but hang fire because I think I think the the better version is coming. Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of popcorn movies for this week, which means we will take a little break. And then we'll come back with a feature review, that feature review being I Care A Lot, which is now streaming, as Paul mentioned earlier on, over here in the UK on Prime Video, everywhere else on Netflix. But we'll get to that right after this. So that brings us to the feature section of the show. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we are reviewing I Care A Lot, the Prime Video exclusive in the UK, at least directed by Jay Blakeson, starring Rosamund Pike, Isaac Gonzalez, and I've completely forgotten his name now. Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage. And you, sir, have committed a hate crime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So to take the baton swiftly here, um, this one, as people may be aware, tells the story of this more crooked than you could probably imagine situation apparently based on or at least having its genesis in reality that legal guardians can take effectively full control of the lives of elderly people older people who um, perhaps don't have surviving relatives perhaps can be um painted into a corner with the idea being that they can no longer take care of themselves effectively. They can move, be moved into an expensive care home and then this guardian can basically drain them dry of all that they're worth. The person at the centre with a sort of heavy-handed, fairly preachy voiceover who tells us about the fact that in this life, if you're a good person, you'll get nowhere, so you've got to turn heel, is played by Rosamund Pike, as Paul mentioned at the outset there, and she has made it her life's mission to essentially look out for number one, and number one, of course, being herself. Um, so we get what seems to be, at the beginning of the film, at least a sort of biting social, social satire on the way in which capitalism is de humanized people in America and across the world and from that we get what is more like a sort of crime movie later on it's a bit of a complex thing to talk about I guess there's been divided opinion on this one on both sides from really positive to sort of 
nondescript or, or, or even outright negative. Uh, we'll get to our full thoughts on I Care A Lot after this little clip. Good morning, Miss Peterson. I'm sorry to disturb you so early. The court has ruled that you require assistance in taking care of yourself. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm afraid it's not up to you to decide. The court has appointed me to be your legal guardian. What? You have to come with me. And remember, I'm here to help. My name is Marla Grayson. I'm just someone who cares. Marla Grayson, you've had amazing success. What's your secret? There is no secret, Peter. She forces them into the home, auctions off their house, and uses the proceeds to pay herself. Because caring is my job. I will grab your dick and balls, and I will rip them clean off. So, I mean, where, where do we start on this one? I guess, for me, let's kind of start, I guess for me, I, I kind of, let's start on the tone of it and, and whether you think it, it got the tone right. It kind of, there's been a lot of talk, again, from, from the positive, the more positive reviews seem to focus on the fact that it's very funny, it's a black comedy, um, and, you know, the more negative side of things comes from the fact that these characters are just all kind of unlikable pieces of shit. Um, and I would sit kind of on the side of the fact that I, I struggled I struggled with the characters, Pete, would be my first thought. Um, despite some, some good performances, I just couldn't really engage with any of them. Like, I, I don't know who you're supposed to root for in this. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe it's me, but I don't know. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I would slightly take to task the idea that you need to root for anyone. But I think that, you know, across the, just generally speaking. Mm. But I think I'm with you on the on the, the premise that I didn't get invested in the film. I think there's something about, and maybe this came across when I set the thing up, but there's something about a film that starts with a voiceover and somebody telling you very didactically what it is that the world is and how you have to be in this world that outside of like an absolutely classic like gangster movie or some or a, or a film noir just just strikes me as well, being it's a not little the only bit... time this film feels a lot like layer cake if i'm honest but hey ho <laughs> yeah yeah right and we'll come on to it i'm sure but like it yeah i i wasn't basically i wasn't on board from the outset and I thought well this is going to have to be really really biting very satirical very funny or extremely dark in order to really get its claws into me and as it ran on and as it shifts gears or sort of shifts form somewhat towards its second half into more like a like a crime movie when the Dinklage character comes in I mean we should say to be sort of clear on what we're talking about premise wise and the machinations of the thing that it effectively boils down to a story of choosing to fleece the wrong person. Uh, Pike's character puts her or sets her sights on a new victim, a woman who seems to have no surviving relatives and is an easy mark and is worth a lot of money. And with her partner, played by Isa Gonzalez, who is both a seemingly a business associate and possibly lover, uh, the movie kind of flirts with that, uh, they move in, they hone in on this woman, and it's only later that it becomes apparent to them that they ruffled the wrong feathers. They got into territory that leaves them sort of out of their depth. Um, although Rosamund Pike's character here seems to be the last person to admit that she is ever out of her depth because there's always somebody else's neck that you can step on, I guess, uh, in order to survive yourself. But yeah, I just, I don't know. There was something about the kind of 
trendy like uh, soundtrack to this thing that seems sort of jarring and overplayed. There was something about the writing, some of the dialogue to me seemed fairly, well, pretty desperately in need of a punch up at the very least. And, um, you know, Jay Blakeson here has not much, I think it's fair to say, of a pedigree. I mean, you know, what what do we have? We were talking about this off mic, but... We've got Disappearance of Alex, uh, Alice Creed, which I thought was, was all right when it came out. I haven't seen it for a few years. And then The Fifth Wave, which is, uh, I think, I don't know much about The Fifth Wave, to be honest. I don't think it got did hammered. particularly well. Did it get hammered? Yeah, it got okay. absolutely hammered, yeah. Um, so, yeah, per- perhaps, well, certainly the biggest project of Jay Blakeson's career. Uh, I, I don't think it's a particularly successful one, but we should be more detailed about why that is. I mean, Paul, aside from... Um, not feeling sort of on board with any of the characters or, or necessarily feeling that you had a lot invested in them. What else kind of stood out to you as not working about this, if indeed that was what you ended up thinking about? I just, I just don't think it, it knew what it wanted to be, I think is is my is my other problem with it. I don't think it, it didn't go for a tone and kind of stick with it. Like, it, I don't think it was ever quite dark enough to be like horrifyingly dark. Neither did it make me laugh, so it, it failed for me as a black comedy. Although it has made it, although I will say there is a lot of people that they have that it has made laugh. So, more power to them. But for me, it just it didn't it didn't kind of put its stake in the ground and said I'm going to be this type of film. I don't think it knew what it wanted to be. And I think you're absolutely right when you talk about certainly some of the dialogue and some of the soundtrack. And and there's a number of moments where it feels like it's sort of trying too hard to be cool, trying a bit too hard to be edgy. Um, and ultimately coming out and having very little edge at all, to be honest. And it's it's a shame because I do, you know, I do like I like the cast. I give them, you know, I respect the, I certainly respect the cast. I think they're very talented. And I think this is probably the best I've seen Isa Gonzalez, to be honest. I think she comes out of this probably better than most because I think it's the strongest role I've seen her in for a, a full stop. Um, so there are, there are, yeah, there are things to like about the performances, but the film just, it just felt muddled and it, I didn't know what it wanted to be, I think, um, is probably my biggest concern. Yeah, for for me, I think I went not the other way, but a different way on Rosamund Pike. That all I could think of with this performance was how it was inferior to her performance. That's not entirely dissimilar in in Gone Girl, um, being that she had to there be sort of icy and duplicitous and stuff like that. And I think was in the hands of a vastly superior director. I think that's sort of beyond question. Um, D- Diane Weist, I thought was great in this, who plays the the woman who is harassed and sort of taken against her will into care um, and is in the end connected to Peter Dinklage's uh, gangster. And I mean, we should say, or I want to say, Peter Dinklage has an awful lot of fun here and, you know, more power to him because this is a a pretty juicy role for the guy as he gets to be the sort of power wielding, sort of debt eyed gangster figure who's like leading his minions to to do his bidding. I, I enjoyed that stuff. I enjoyed the stuff with him quite a bit maybe less so the stuff with him and Rosamund Pike directly and when it gets to a sort of cat and mouse I've tried to kill you and you've tried to kill me I just maybe there's something about the casting there at least on Rosamund Pike's side I don't know but I just yeah coming back to our initial point I just didn't I didn't care that much who ended up getting the upper hand they're both absolute shits I mean it does it matter yeah, I know where you're coming from, but I think that, that adds to another, kind of brings me on to another point that I, although we were talking off mic about the fact that this is potentially based on the, the guardianship it does exist in the US and this kind of thing can happen, I just thought the from, from the get-go the whole premise was too much of a stretch because the way it's dealt with here is one doctor, like one doctor's note, 
uh, gives Rosamund Pike access to all of this to all of these clients' money. There's no it's just one doctor's note. Only one doctor has to sign on it, off on it. One judge, and there's no course for appeal. And the whole thing just seemed a bit silly. And then there's there's more kind of decisions. There's there's more decisions, narrative decisions that the film makes, like um, with the with the Peter Dinklage character. Like if, there's so many moments where he would have just killed her. There's so many, he's supposed to be this sort of terrible gangster. And there's so many moments, like there's there's a moment in it when they, they try and kill Rosamund Pike by running her car off a cliff, but then she um, miraculously wakes up just to get out of the, so she can get out of the car in time. Like he's supposed to be this this complete like this almost like this myth. What am I what am I trying to say here? He's supposed to be this like big time gangster, and he's not. I don't think it's he's never tough enough. It just seems to make there's a lot of narr silly, silly narrative decisions that seem to exist. Obviously, narrative decisions exist to get you to the end of a film. Uh, I'm losing myself here, but I, I'm, I'm almost back what I'm saying. I don't know. There's just so many times where I was just shaking my head, going, "The character would not have done this, or that character wouldn't have done that," and it happened too many times for me to forgive, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, I think that's fair. I liked, um, I, I want to throw in a couple of things that I did like, because there were a couple. Um, I like the exchanges between um, Marla, Rosamund Pike's character, and, and the character Dean, played by Chris Messina, who is the, like... Uh, I guess legal heavy who comes in to give her the word that you you fuck with the wrong person basically and I'm going to tell you why that is and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do and how much money you'll accept as a payoff essentially and I thought that stuff kind of crackled that stuff was pretty good but yeah I, I don't know man it didn't add up to a whole lot of a lot for me in the end and also and I think you mentioned this at some point along the line there that like it, it felt like a film that thought it was tremendously cool. And, and that just kind of pisses me off with stuff like this because at the end of the day, like, it, yeah, it's just shit people being shit. I don't know how, how cool that is. And like on the, the movie poster for this thing, I mentioned this off mic um, when we weren't recording, but the, the pull quote is deliciously nasty. And deliciously nasty, I just don't, I think it's over-crediting the movie. I think it's nasty. But I think deliciously nasty, you look at something like um, first time feature director again at Thoroughbreds, or I should say again, this guy's done made a couple of movies, as we said, but uh, I guess inexperienced feature director, something like Thoroughbreds from a few years ago, far better, far icier, far more delicious and certainly nasty. So, yeah, I, I don't know, man, like reading a lot of the critical reception, I just found myself out of step with it. And it sounds like you did as well, right? Like a lot of the praise. Yeah, I was quite surprised to read the to read the praise that it's got. And as I said, I, I can't, you know, um, I just can't help but think about layer cake like you get to the end and it's just like it's just it's just it feels like a rip-off like it's not the only film that's ended like that but starts a voiceover ends in a similar way um spoiler warning there um but yeah i just i just struggled with it and i just left the film just kind of i just remember looking at my wife and just going nah didn't like that uh. yeah and, and and i mean i i don't want to get into spoilery territory either but like when you see your boy make on blair get like a minute in the movie you're thinking, no, you're not, you're you know not gonna, you know, back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jay Blakeson is not wielding the kind of power where he goes, oh, I'm gonna get this guy on board and give him a couple of minutes at the beginning of the movie. Nah, so you know, I kind of called that quite a distance out, um, and I will say no more about it. But it, to be honest with you, that thing that happens at the end felt like the best thing that happened, or the best thing that could happen, perhaps, uh, I suppose, in terms of the, you know, some something of comeuppance to somebody in this yeah, yeah, but Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I care a lot. I mean, the obvious joke here is I didn't care a lot, and that is accurate from my side. What about you, Paul? Uh, that's exactly accurate from my side as well. Yeah, I'm not a fan, sorry. 
Yes. Well, not all of our feature reviews, fellas and ladies, are this uh, sort of down and negative, but we're going to pull ourselves out of the wreckage of I Care A Lot and come back in just a moment, fully refreshed, to give you our top five movie schemes. And here we're going to look at movies that we think involve scheming and schemers that are infinitely superior to I Care A Lot. So you can look forward to that after this little break. Welcome to the top five of this week, which, as we've said, is top five sort of movie schemes, some of which may be evil. Uh, I know certainly most of mine are, I'll be honest. So, um, yeah, we're going to count. It's just kind of, yeah, schemes that kind of, when we kind of thought of this, we were like, well, I care a lot is about a scheme, a scheme. Certainly there's a scheme, a lot of scheming going on in that film. So what kind of films jumped out at us? What kind of jumped into our minds uh, when we put this list together? So, um, yeah, Pete, start with your number five. Number five for me, Paul, is Some Like It Hot. Some Like It Hot. Again, Billy Wilder coming up twice. Two shouts on this show after Sunset Boulevard. But uh, this one starring an actress that you may be aware of called Marilyn Monroe. But the real headline and the scheme here is in the hands of Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. Um, Some Like It Hot. For those of you who don't know, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. It's been out for um, 60 years. Uh, <laughs> tells the story of a couple of men who need to uh, flee in a hurry, um, fleeing the state, fleeing uh, a mob, essentially, pursuing them. And the only opportunity that presents itself for them to get away from the sticky situation that they're in is to join an all-female band. So they, of course, have to disguise themselves as women and blend in with the the group of uh, here female musicians who are travelling on a, a train journey initially and then arrive at a destination, a sort of beachside destination. Amongst that group is Marilyn Monroe on absolutely crackling form here. And you just get like some lovely stuff because it's sort of territory that could, particularly now in hindsight, having had our discussion about, you know, movies at a particular point in time were all racist and sexist as AF or whatever. Uh, it could be quite uh, troubling, I guess, some of this stuff, but it's pulled off with so much sort of zeal and good nature and good humour that to me anyway, it stands up and it isn't murky and it isn't, you know... Um, awkward to re-watch at this point in fact it's entertaining and it's kind of life affirming and it's kind of lovely and um yeah things like also the the lemon and, and curtis characters getting into situations where they're being pursued by men and are trying to come up with all the reasons why in fact they can't get married to the man who is now seeing them as the object of his affection um all the way down to you know i can there's a guy who says um oh i i can um I have the wedding dress, the wedding dress from my mother. You can wear that on the day that we're married. And then the response has to be, well, well, actually, we're different body types and it just wouldn't work in quite the same way because the truth <laughs> of the matter is the whole thing is a facade and they are both, in fact, men. I think it's a really good movie. I, I go back to it every few years. I like it a great deal. And it's a good little scheme, a good lighthearted little gender switch scheme, Paul. That's my number five, Some Like It Hot. What have you got first? At number five, it's not a particularly light-hearted scheme, as most of mine don't seem to be. This is the film The Usual Suspects, 
um, which I haven't seen for a number of years. So forgive me if my memory of the plot is slightly wobbly. But the, you know, it's one of those films that's definitely got an unforgettable end. Um, and yeah, it's. I think it's. It's you know, it's a good film. It stars some questionable people involved in it these days, which is unfortunate. But the film stands up. Um, this is the. I mean, most people will probably be aware of this. The fact that Kevin Spacey's character, uh, Kint, known as Kint for most of the film. Um, has the kind of FBI convinced that the they're, they're basically there's a, there's a group of con men as you'll probably be aware uh, Gabriel Burns among the cast um, I think who else is in this there's a number of there's a number of famous people in, in the cast Richard Brian Singer but yeah it's a group of con men brought into um, an FBI interview room um, and they're trying to trying to get to the bottom of who the mastermind behind this this kind of big heist or big con is um, and Kent's character Kevin Spacey's character called Kent um, kind of just leads everyone up the garden path that they're being manipulated by this guy called Kaiser Soze. Um, and it turns out at the end that Kevin Spacey's character, Kin, is in fact Kaiser Soze when he kind of just want, he kind of, as he's walking off down the street, his limp disappears. Um, and then it turns out that this guy, the, the Kevin Spacey character, Kaiser Soze, has been playing everyone all along. We're doing a really bad job of describing the usual suspects yeah, next time I should and, watch a and, film. <laughs> and I feel like, Paul, you are a man who often drops in halfway through a review, spoiler alert, I think there could have been one there, probably. There is. I mean, what we put, I probably should have dropped in spoiler alert. Probably should have dropped in spoiler alert at the top of the show. Maybe just edit something. with <laughs> just this big klaxon that goes off. Then spoiler alert. Yeah, for the rest of these films, certainly on my list, there are big spoilers coming up. So um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's probably good to pitch that out there at the beginning of the countdown. Yeah, that that this might get spoilery because it's hard to describe a scheme without sort yeah. of giving away details of how that scheme plays out. Uh, number four for me is a fairly contemporary movie from 2006. This one is The Prestige. And specifically, Paul, not the whole movie. We're not talking about the whole movie. We're talking about a scheme. And of course, it's got to be the scheme of the little old Asian man, or is he, and the fishbowl. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the stuff where Hugh Jackman's explaining that this is a person so dedicated to his art that he has had to live every day. In fact, sorry, I think that might be the Bale character who has this speech, but he uh, explains that this is a man so committed to his art that he lives every day and has lived every day of his life in character. He's gone full method in order to pull off a trick which essentially is a little old decrepit man on stage revealing from nowhere, from thin air, a fully um, a filled fishbowl, big uh, sort of uh, spherical fishbowl that he couldn't possibly have concealed any other way than the way that nobody expects to be possible, which is carrying it between your knees and holding it with your own strength for every part of your public life. And it was just, for me, it's a moment that's in the Christopher Priest novel um, that this thing is based on, the Nolan film is based on. And it, like, it's a moment for me that does such a great job of encapsulating the center of that plot um, and what it is that the stakes are here for the characters in terms of how you can get to the top if you're willing to go further than everybody else. You know, like stunt drivers, for example, who'll just do the next biggest trick and they might die. You know, uh, I've been watching a lot of stuff recently with Steve-O from Jackass because now that he's sort of sober and clean, he's quite a level-headed and interesting guy, I guess. Yeah, no, he is. Yeah, I've seen a bit of stuff recently as well. Yeah, and, and, and again, Steve-O exacts like an exemplar of that kind of guy who just wanted to get the best take. So he'd do the thing that was going to hurt him potentially the most. And here you've got this scheme that is just all about 
I'm prepared to go further than you. And that's going to get me to the top of my my craft. Um, in this case, the craft of the illusionist. So yeah, that one stuck with me at the time, and it has until now. So it's number four. Number four, the fishbowl scheme or trick from the Prestige. What have you got next, Paul? Uh, number four for me is the character of Frank Abernale from Catch Me If You Can, uh, the book and the film. Because I'm aware the film is based on a book directed by Spielberg, played brilliantly, I think, by DiCaprio in the film. Um, yeah, and this is based on a real life con man, I believe, who um, has managed to impersonate. I mean, this it's an insane story. It really is. Um, he kind of he managed to he managed to con the banks out of something in the region of two and a half three million pounds worth of bad checks uh, by assuming various positions, but not just sort of assuming everyday jobs. No, he's assuming jobs such as a pilot, a Pan Am pilot, a doctor, a teacher, an attorney. Like this guy, I, I, it's the kind of guy you'd love to meet because I can imagine you would just be in his thrall kind of immediately if you met him in the bar of a pub. Do you remember what those are, listeners? Pubs. Um, but no, if you were if you were to meet him or sort of come across him, I imagine the guy in real life is just incredibly charming and just an incredibly interesting man but it, it certainly makes for a great character and it certainly makes for a, a film that I'm long overdue watching Catch Me If You Can again because I really enjoyed it at the time um, but yeah I think that's it's fair to say that's um, there's a number of yeah it's quite a scheme uh, and that's why it makes number four on my list of favourite movie schemes nice yeah it's definitely one that came straight to mind when putting this this list together um, the next one I've got, and I'm interested to know if this is a film you've caught up with, Paul. Do you know the movie Nine Queens? I do not. So Nine Queens is a movie about a couple of grifters, and that's why it's made this list. Um, it's written and directed by Fabian Belinsky. Fabian Belinsky's uh, movie uh, came out in the year 2000, and Belinsky himself passed away just six years later in 2006. So unfortunately, after this, there was one more film, and that's it. And I think it's a crying shame. I mean... Nine Queens is this, as I say, movie about a couple of grifters who are going to pull off seemingly a counterfeit sale of a sheet of incredibly rare stamps um, that are called the Nine Queens. And in doing so, they're going to make a fortune because it seems like these stamps have a value somewhere like or somewhere in the region of half a million dollars if they can be sold to the right buyer. I don't want to give the whole scheme away because I know we're saying like spoiler alert, but you know, this is the kind of movie that I think people might enjoy catching up with and maybe wasn't on the radar before. But it's one of those um, sort of rug pull schemes where you're taken one way and you should have been looking the other way. Not unlike the central, you know, premise of the prestige, the old bait and switch, I think they call it in Lucky Number Slevin, which is a movie I never thought I'd mention on this show. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very smart. It's very much about uh, double crossing and again, being one step ahead and a sort of genre of movie that as a young man or a boy essentially just had me in its thrall and more on that in my next pick but yeah this one nine queens i think is is certainly worth checking out i think it was remade in the english language don't bother with that um this one is the film that you should see paul what have you got next uh, a film that I brought up earlier in the show, so I've just watched it um, recently. This is Yojimbo, the Akira Kurosawa film I was talking about in popcorn movies. Um, yeah, it's a brilliant scheme. Um, the samurai comes to town, 
um, kind of offers his services, looking to make looking to make some money. Um, Realizes when he meets another local that there is two kind of rival. There's two rival gangs in town that are trying to control the gambling um, industry. There's a silk merchant and a sake merchant, um, and they both kind of they end up both trying to hire him as a personal bodyguard. He then realizes realizing that both of these groups of people are bad news and kind of like that a he can probably make a bit of money out of this and b it will clean up the town and the other people living in the town will be a lot happier if these two gang gangs are gone. He then sets up this kind of this really really quite clever situation where he plays the two gangs off each other um, to basically encourage them to go to war and wipe each other out because he realizes he can't necessarily take despite the fact he's a samurai he can't necessarily take them all on by himself. Um, although he gives it a good go at points because there's some awesome fights in this, but. Yeah, it's a really clever kind of really clever setup. The way he plays the two, the way they play plays the two gangs off of each other. Um, and yeah, it's a really a really great scheme, uh, really quite clever film, and I really enjoyed that element of it. So, and it plays it for comedy at times as well, which is nice. So, um, yeah, that's Yojimbo at number three. Nice, uh, all the way up to number two. Yeah, building on what I said about movies that have me in their thrall about grifters and con men. This is this is the movie, Paul, for me. Uh, House of Games. House of Games, written and directed by David Mamet. Have you seen this one? No. Oh, watch I've a been of... to watch this for a few years. Yeah, but, watch yeah. a load of Grifter movies like like this and Nine Queens, because I mean, it's the better of the two movies, I would say. But uh, yeah, this movie came out, I think, originally sort of late 80, 87, it says on the IMDb here, maybe 88 in the UK. But uh, I was but a tiny infant at that time, so would have caught up with it a good five to ten years later i guess um yeah probably more like 10 years later sometime in the in the 90s but uh house of games is not unlike nine queens in the sense that uh somebody who thinks they're incredibly clever isn't quite as clever as they thought they were uh in the basics of the plot that i can give out here without ruining it again uh, there is a female psychiatrist who is played by an actress called Lindsay Krauss who is drawn into the world of grifters and con artists where she comes to the aid of a gambler who has a contact who reveals that they work on cons. They're constantly scheming, not unlike the family in Kajillionaire, but like with a lot more skill and sleight of hand and organisation. And so she becomes seemingly a kind of patsy, a kind of rube, a kind of mark for them, unbeknownst to her. Um, so in the end, she's going to have to come to their aid when they need bailing out when a particular grift goes wrong. But that's not the end of the story. Um, House of Games, yeah, just one of those, you know, Paul, like those early sort of formative movies where the first time I saw it, I just thought, my God, where are the other films that are like this? This is the film I want to watch every week. Um, and so I will go back to it in full soon. I've just been watching little bits and pieces recently, but um, I really loved it at the time. I still like it a lot now. It's um, House of Games and particularly this cross, double cross, double, double cross. You can figure it out for yourself that happens at the center of the plot there. What have you got at number two? I'm going to try not to spoil this one, actually, to be fair, because the end of this film is is quite something. And it, I remember when I first watched this, like the shock value when you see what happens is is quite up there. This is a film that I believe we are a fan of as well, and I think has come up on the show once or twice before. This is um, this is John Dahl's The Last Seduction, starring uh, Peter Berg, Linda Fiorentino, uh, Bill Pullman. 
Um, yeah, without giving away too much about what happens here, Linda Fiorentino is quite scheming in this film, I think it would be fair to say. Um, we've got kind of this neo-noir set up to this, um, and man, does she know how to toy with the men in her life, um, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, she plays off, she plays everyone, she plays all the characters off each other incredibly well. She plays with, she, she, she plays, she plays against racial prejudice. She works, she uses racial prejudice to her advantage. Um, she plays, she plays off the private detective sense to try and find her. She is the kind of ultimate femme fatale in this and her performance is brilliant. And, um, yeah, the plan that she comes up with and how the films ends and what she does, uh, I won't spoil here, but trust me when I say it's it's brilliant um, and it certainly took me by surprise and I did not see it coming um, and I watched it fairly recently actually probably before well certainly when we were doing the show and it stands up really well so um, yeah it's a, it's a great little film I still think underseen to be honest in the grand scheme of things but yeah the scheming in the last seduction takes things to a whole new level um, and the reason I'm not spoiling this one and spoiling the others is because there's more chance that people have seen the others on the list and less chance people have seen this so I'm going to fall back into spoiler territory for my number one don't worry about that <laughs> nice um, number one for me I guess it was the first scheme that came to mind when we settled on doing a top five schemes this week but it, it's my number one not because it's the best scheme and also not because it is um, very much based on a real scheme that actually worked for a real person but because of the man who is able to benefit from the scheme in the particular movie that I've chosen so this one is uh, P.T. Anderson's film Punch Drunk Love a movie very close to my heart and the scheme that anybody who's seen that movie will instantly know is of course involving pudding uh, the collection of barcodes from puddings that the central character played by Adam Sandler, Barry Egan, in the movie realises there is a, a flaunt in the system, there is a loophole in the system whereby pudding pots can be purchased for as little as 25 cents and the air miles that are included with those pudding pots are worth somewhere in the region of two dollars this means that he can buy infinite amounts of pudding pots and therefore get a massive amount of air miles worth far more than the original purchase of the pudding pots uh this is what he sets about doing now this scheme this grift this plan is based on um a thing that was actually pulled off by a guy called david phillips uh listed on the wikipedia now as an entrepreneur although i think his entrepreneurship is limited to the pudding pudding guy stuff uh but yeah this guy told shop clerks that he was getting ready for y2k when he did this uh, in 1999 of course on the eve of the millennium uh, the movie came out a few years later and took advantage of this idea for the central plot but like barry egan in the movie for anyone who doesn't know is this guy who is completely like hempecked to death given that he's the only brother in a gaggle of a bunch of he's got like six sisters or five sisters or something like that in his family he's also um sort of preternaturally lacking in confidence um he as he discloses to a guy who i think is an orthodontist but he thinks is a is a, a medic um he discloses that he, he effectively hates himself and he's sort of dying inside on a daily basis and what happens in punch drunk love as a result of this scheme is he has the opportunity to break out of his sort of um state of complete stasis and kind of um, hopelessness and travel and go somewhere and right now Paul that seems pretty appropriate so <laughs> if there's a way we can collect pudding pot barcodes then let's get on it because when this stuff's over we can all fly around the world and meet 
Well, I would say my true love, but I think my wife will listen to this and I've already found her. But um, yeah, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> what, what a film it is, uh, what a scheme it was, and uh, the combination of those two things. I mean, yeah, I, I, I still kind of think Punch Drug Love is a bit underrated, if I'm honest, which sounds weird given that it's a P.T. Anderson film and, you know, at least critically, he's pretty much universally lauded. But uh, yeah, that's my number one, the pudding guy scheme in Punch Drug Love. Well, when we are able to fly around the world, perhaps we should fly to South Korea, which I know is somewhere that you've been, and also um, the origin, the the country from which my number one pick uh, is from. This is Old Boy from two thousand and three, directed by Park Chan Wook. Um, yeah, what, what what can you say about the scheme in Old Boy? Really, um, it's quite dark. Would be one way to look at this. Um, so we've got the premise here, where a man essentially wakes up in a prison cell. Well, a man is in is kind of on the way home from a night out wakes up in a prison cell inexplicably and then uh is held in this hotel room stroke prison cell for 15 years uh, knowing nothing about the identity of who's put in there or why he's there or any of the motives behind it he's then suddenly released um and is understandably quite upset about this so kind of goes on that you know tries to find out what's happened tries to find out who's put him there and it's suffice to say is in the mood for revenge um he's sharpened up his um he's sharpened up his physical fighting skills uh against a wall for many many years in the 15 years he's been there and yeah he's out he's out looking to find out what happens um what happens after that I'm, I'm do you know what i'm not going to spoil the end just in case people haven't seen it because if you haven't seen it this is one of I, if we were doing top five film endings this would probably be in my number probably in my top five ones of those as well to be fair um suffice to say um he has been well he's been imprisoned by someone he's been imprisoned by someone that he's been to school with um that blames him for an event that happens that blames him for getting bullied at school essentially and i won't say any more than that but the end is one of those sort of few films where i remember watching watching this one well, a few years ago when i first saw it and just kind of sat there and just had to double take and i was like fuck that is a dark end to that film like what the fuck and i kind of just was there like goosebumps just going what have i just watched who is this director? Who, who? Where can I see more of his films? Like, Old Boy has that much. Of, it's that good an ending. Like, it, again, it's one of those films that it's great when you watch it again. It does stand up. I saw it at the cinema briefly last year in that period of time when cinemas could reopen. So that was that was a blessing. But it's one of those films that you'll never forget the first time you watch it. And uh, the reason I've chosen not to spoil it is because go in as cold as you can. Sort of knowing any more than that. Yeah, you don't want to know anything about this. You want to go in as cold as you can. It's quite difficult these days. It's been out a few years now. But yeah, the kind of the, the scheme, the the complexity of the scheme, the planning of this uh, is it's it's bleak. It's very, very clever um, and it's very, very dark. So um, what, brace yourselves. Uh, old boy will kick you in the face uh, without a shadow of a doubt. But it's superb film and a superb scheme. So that's it for me. It's my number one movie scheme is Old Boy. Nice. So I think we can safely say that probably all of those schemes um, and at least the films that contain those schemes trump at least our opinion on I Care A Lot this week's feature. But before we duck out for another week, Paul, we bring the curtain down on the episode with credits, uh, the part of the show where we talk about something that we've enjoyed in the last week um, against the backdrop of all the bleakness and all the bad news there are lots of things to enjoy and these in this section of the show don't even have to be movies or movie related what if anything do you want to give credit to this week Paul? 
Uh, 50, the inner 15-year-old in me is very much enjoying Mortal Kombat 11, uh, which <laughs> which I've purchased this week. Um, it's a lot of fun. The fight that it's it mechanically it's a sound fighting game, uh, but it's quite entertaining to revisit uh, ridiculous ultra violence. Like the last probably the last time I properly played a Mortal Kombat game is when they were back on the sort of Super Nintendo and Mega Drive days, and by today's standards look fairly ropey. But I kind of logged into Mortal Kombat 11. It, it looks fantastic. It's got this ridiculous overblown story mode that if you want complete escapism uh, with this like complete sort of B-movie overblown end of the world plot with all of the Mortal Kombat characters, uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, and Robocop and the Terminator and John Rambo have turned up in this this time. So I, I'm on board. Like 15-year-old nerdy Paul is, 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 in, is in heaven. I'm enjoying Mortal Kombat a lot. <laughs> Nice. Um, the recommendation I'll make this week, again, something I've stumbled across on the old YouTubes. I should probably get YouTube premium at some point, to be honest, the amount of time I spend recommending stuff off YouTube. I've done it. I've done it. Life without adverts on YouTube is bliss. Oh, I bet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I might come over to that, that side at some point. But this thing is a channel called Colours um, and Colours spelt in the american style c-o-l-o-r-s um, is colors studio or colors x studio if you like described in their own about section as a unique aesthetic music platform which might sound wanky as hell but bear with me uh, what we've basically <laughs> got and what drew me to it is individual performances so each video will only be sort of up to about five minutes of artists from far and wide all over the world all across the map, uh, map in terms of genres and they perform on a minimalist set, which is usually a very small stage with the background completely filled in in a saturated individual color. Still sounds okay. pretty wanky, I understand this. But like for me, for example, in the videos that I've watched so far, I watched a Kaliu Cheese one, I don't know for people who are into her stuff, uh, which was just, again, cool. It's like minimal, there's nothing going on. All we've got on the scene is like a dangling sort of a classic microphone dangling down from the ceiling, but out of shot. And then that's in front of the artist as they perform. It's not like choreographed dance routines. It's all stripped back. There's also one, and this is just personal taste, so like delve into what you like, but uh, Denzel Curry does a version of his track Diet, which is just, I mean, the guy's incredible anyway, but like in this aesthetic, it's just taking everything else away. I guess- It's just an artist in front of like a color. A color, yeah. It's basically okay. an artist in front of a color. This um, reminds me of, um, of a time at Reading Festival where I took too many mushrooms and watched the White Stripes and all I remember is just seeing a big loads of red so um, that'll be a flashback to that <laughs> yeah yeah so well you're in your element in that case you don't even have to take mushrooms to watch this channel but yeah I, I recommend it I mean it's doing incredibly well I'm not like again breaking news here I mean it's currently got 5.3 million subscribers let alone sort of in individual views per, per video and stuff like that so yeah check it out um, if you're interested in like music and live performance and stuff because I just feel like you know I'm not alone, but I crave live music in a way that sort of reappears in waves for me at the moment because it was such a part of my life, um, you know, and, and that for so many people before we were all locked at home. Um, I can't wait to get back to shows. And in the meantime, find cool stuff on YouTube and do what you can. So, yeah, that one's Colours or uh, Colours Studio. Uh, that brings us to the end, Paul. Uh, social media and stuff like that, right? Yeah, so social media at Strangers Cinema on Twitter, Strangers in a Cinema on Instagram and Facebook, uh, www.strangersinacinema.net if you want all of those things thrown into one handy place for you. Um, but that's about it for this week. We'll be back next week. Uh, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.